right. Welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jeff. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Did you know there's an election tomorrow? Wait, there's an election tomorrow? <laughs> who who are you voting for, John? I'm still undecided. <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. Um, so how was your week? We, uh, you came to my Halloween party, uh, over the weekend, didn't you? Yeah. Thank you for delaying it for a week. It, it worked better for the schedule, <laughs> but uh, our kids, I mean like the, the amount of candy our children got was unbelievable. Yeah. My neighborhood knows how to do Halloween. Uh, we've been doing that party since I was seven years old. Um, that, uh, that little shack that was back there, my dad, brother, and I built that, um, uh, when, I think I, I think I was like eight because the first year we did it in the garage, and then one year we turned that uh, shed that's down there we turned that into a haunted house. It was awesome. Oh, cool! Um, lot, lots of great childhood memories. It's great that I'm able to like bring that to my kid, to my kids, my parents, grandkids. You know. Yeah, something to be said for keeping traditions alive. Yeah, I uh, I always dress as my grandfather. How'd you like my outfit? I liked it. How'd yeah. you like my outfit? <laughs> yeah. That, so uh, for those of you who don't know, and by the way, we forgot to take a picture, so it's, it's, this never really happened. Um, John came dressed as me. He was wearing a flannel and a Y435 t-shirt. <laughs> Although in hindsight, I didn't have a book, so it, it was not a uh, complete rendition. But I, I had year. two. You should have just grabbed one of mine. You, just grabbed one. <laughs> you know, You know what one of those books was? It, it was without precedent. Uh, the story of Chief, Ju- Chief Justice John Marshall. I've been reading this. I basically read it <laughs> yesterday, and it's fascinating. Um, and I thought f- it would be he's good- the first Chief Marshall, right? I'm sorry, if he's <clears throat> no. the first Chief Justice. No, John Jay was the first Chief Justice. John he was Jay the was first. Born. So uh, John Marshall was the first Chief Justice that like set the modern day precedent of like how the court runs. So the first thing that he did when he came in was he. Uh, tried to coalesce everybody into like making unanimous decisions and, mm-hmm. and writing one opinion. Um, I think previously all the judges just wrote their own opinions. It wasn't unanimous. They just did whatever. And also the court didn't do anything interesting. John Jay left it because like he was just bored. <laughs> like anyone at the run for governor. Um, it wasn't like a prestigious thing when John Marshall took over. But well, they didn't even have had- a building, right? They just had to go meet in taverns. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they met in Tavers. They actually rode circuit. Um, when John Marshall first took over, um, and prior to that, they rode circuit around the country taking up cases. Um, that's actually where his first big case comes into play. It was Marbury versus Madison. Um, and essentially what, you know, everybody, not everybody, but at that time period, right before John Adams left office, he did the Federal Judiciary Act of like was it 1800 1801 i can't remember the year now anyways he does this it's like the republicans at the time are not happy with it because adams sneaks in all these judges Mm -hmm. um and uh, chief justice john marshall had basically he had a stack of all these judges along with like 42 justice of the pieces that he had uh, signed off on and district uh court uh judges for the for the district I think there was 42 of them. It was a lot, um, more than you would think for a population of 3,000 people. Um, and so he delivered most of them himself, but he 
he forgot to deliver 42 of them. And during this time period, now Jefferson is sworn in as president, and Jefferson comes in, and I think Levi Lincoln, who was the temporary secretary of state waiting for Madison, Jefferson comes in, and or Levi Lincoln finds these, that they're undelivered, and Jefferson orders him not to deliver them. And he basically says, well, they're not real until they're delivered to the person. And, you know, Marshall and the other people, they're like, well, actually, it was just a, a clerical error, you know, whatever. Anyways, it becomes a whole court case. And um, basically, uh, and I just read this, so hopefully I can explain this properly, but um, Marshall kind of establishes judicial review with this case, even though he has pretty much no jurisdiction over it. Um, it's about, so Madison, excuse me, Madison, Jefferson wanted to, um, he wanted to nominate some of the judges and then some of his own judges as mm -hmm. well. And um, Marbury and a couple of the other ones, they wanted to keep their job for some reason. It wasn't very glamorous at the time. It was pretty much to stick at the Jefferson. This was this was all political, right? Like mm -hmm. this was all partisan fighting, essentially. Um, Marshall knew that he didn't really, he didn't have any power at all in this. If he ruled the way that he wanted to rule, he figured that the executive would just not listen, and he would, and the court would be left impotent, essentially, and they would have no future power over the president. And so he crafts this very, uh, I don't know the right word, just he crafts this very in-between message and establishes judicial review where he basically, he goes and sides with the Republicans saying that the Judiciary Act was kind of unconstitutional. And so they can't really complain about it. And it solves kind of the problem without going to bat against the administration. And mm -hmm. what it does is the administration, therefore, accepts the ruling, okay? And now this case has set precedent that the Supreme Court can check the executive. Um, that's like, you know, a very basic uh, explanation. Like I said, I'll, I'm going to keep on reading about this. I'll be able to explain it better on a future podcast, hopefully a little bit shorter. But, I mean, that's, that's essentially what happened there is, is he didn't have any power, and he found a way to wield power. From the from a minority position through this very political you know tactic, and would you say judicial just you know for the listeners at home judicial review that's just the ability for the Supreme Court to look at any law and to say yay or nay that this is constitutional is that kind of that's the the gist of it yeah to to determine because if let's say that the let's say that the Congress and the executive work together to write something that was just completely anti constitutional. The Supreme Court would, you know, has the ability to review that and say, no, no, the Constitution says this, mm -hmm. you know, and and having that review and that power to, you know, like I said, if he if he ruled against the administration and the administration just decided to do nothing back then, there would have been no, nothing in the future that could have stopped uh, a president from going through because precedent would have been on their side. He mm -hmm. set precedent. Right. That was that's like. You know, that's what we hear all the time with uh, Supreme Court justices when they're, when they're um, being interviewed is about precedent, how important precedent is. Well, he was the first one and he said it. <laughs> <laughs>
But I mean, I, Ima- I think, imagine that the Supreme Court making up a, a decision that uh, well, people don't. And like. it says, well, yeah, I know, crazy, right? I and mean, it's you know, the more I study about the Supreme Court, that's what it is. It's like it's making up things. So it actually like describes his ruling. He's like he completely fabricated this. And there was a uh, there was a witness that was his brother actually, and pretty sure that was all perjured, right? And and the chief. The, and the Supreme Court justice was like on board for it, right? Like he did a lot of really bad things in this scenario that you wouldn't want somebody in power to do. And he set it up that way because A, they knew the truth. He had to, he had to get this witness to perjure himself in order to establish a truth that everybody already knew, but he needed to be able to establish it in a court of law. So they, they fabricated this story, um, which is insane and was totally accepted. <laughs> but... And you look at all like the kind of shady things that they did and you and you look back and you go, well, it kind of was a good thing. Like having judicial review is a good thing in our country. It is a nice balance of power. Um, I think it's how the Supreme Court should function, but I don't necessarily know if that's what it was going to be functioning as if he doesn't do what he did in this case. Well, see, that's interesting because I guess like a Supreme Court constitutionally is responsible for kind of uh, putting a, a check on Congress, but if it isn't spelled out, as it, then we have this kind of gray area, and <clears throat> that's where we have some of our problems today. Is because the Supreme Court has overreached in certain senses, where it just kind of creates rights and laws out of the Constitution based on what it thinks, uh, what it thinks people want to hear. Yeah, and and you know a lot of that. So the the why that happens is because a lot in a lot of these early cases. Marshall kind of sets those precedences and they're able to go back and they're used that. And if you read the cases and you read what he was doing, Marshall was kind of reading the temperature of the country and what was going on. Plus he was also, he was a little bit, you know, he was, he was for a strong executive government. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a time period where we were still building that out. So he was ruling politically and, um, and, in a lot of circumstances. And he was also trying to find like common ground to like make things right, you know? And I think that's one of the things that gets lost in our law nowadays is it's not about who's right or who's wrong. It's about who's the law, like where's the law, but, but people are manipulating the law all the time with these old precedences that really have no weight in the new cases. Um, just because they can, you know, smart people doing, doing smart things for rich people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sitting in some of these um, court hearings—not really court hearings, but hearing lawyers debate stuff. Uh, it, you just you roll, you kind of roll your eyes sometimes because it's just like they—they they both have created arguments out of out of precedent, out of previous court cases that somehow uh, contradict each other, and now it's up to the third person, the independent judge, to pick whichever side uh, the judge thinks is. Uh, quote makes more sense but you know you could you could off honestly you could probably argue both sides for a lot of these cases and it just comes down to whatever the judge wants um if you know if that's ideological or if it's because uh, they don't like one of the lawyers or something I, I imagine that goes into it so i think that i think that people that end up being judges um are just a different type of people they're they're the type of people that kind of want to find right they want to find the answer so they're i think they're less likely to be partisan i know that i mentioned you know 
he was he was partisan, but he, he was partisan based on his beliefs, right? Like the Federalists and the Republicans were were against each other, but he was a executive government guy. He wanted a strong executive, and he wanted that because of the experiences he had in government in China, in the founding, in seeing that weak executive and how poor it could manage a country. So, like these were like principles that he had as well. Um, and I think so. I think it's you know there's there's a story about power here, and we we talk about power all the time and how the power is not balanced properly. And this is that time period where power was beginning. You know, it was it was everybody was learning it at that time, you know, how power is supposed to be balanced in the government. And Jefferson, you know, who is a big player in these events, he was man, he was a power hungry guy, wasn't he? Yes, he yeah. I know as much as as much as we like to paint him as just this lovable freedom uh, guy who, you know, wants to separate church and state. You know, I you could probably argue the reason he didn't like the, the church is because the church was telling him what to do and he wanted he wanted no direction in his life other than whatever he felt like yeah and 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 jefferson uh embodied like republicanism at this time period and he was an elite like he was he was a little aristocrat from from virginia and you know like he had all these advantages that other people didn't have and he you know he didn't really blend in with the common people like like John Marshall was much more like a common man than Thomas Jefferson was. And you know, the funny part is, is like, you know, they're all related. So uh, Marshall, uh, William, I think it's William Randolph, and then uh, Thomas Jefferson, they were all in the government at the same time. They were all related. Marshall's family got cut out because like his, I think his grandmother was a little um, promiscuous, maybe had a kid out of wedlock or something like that. And like his whole fa side of the family got cut out of like, the money side of the family so he grew up less you know with less opportunity than somebody like jefferson um and still ended up making it and they became rivals um you know being pitting one power against the other the executive versus the uh the senate there or excuse me the uh supreme court that's interesting yeah i think uh aren't the lees the richard harry lee and um robert e. lee they're related to the randolphs too aren't they I'm not sure. I have, to do, I have to pull up the family tree. You, you're probably right. Um, it's crazy a lot how how many of these people were related with each other. Um, but so so, anyways, uh, Jefferson, you know, he's he's like this power hungry guy. He had, he did some like really shady things. He tried to impeach um, a a Supreme Court justice, uh, Chase Samuel Chase, who you know he was very partisan. He probably didn't deserve the job. But as far as like you know, coming to the level of impeachment, high crimes, misdemeanors, right? Like he didn't reach that at all. Mm -hmm. But Jefferson tried to get Burr, who was overseeing this, to like pressure to get a conviction in the Senate. Um, and it was, it was all about power with, uh, with Jefferson. He was trying to establish power back over the Supreme Court with basically trying to get around the lifetime appointments, you know, by finding ways to impeach him. He used it as a political tool, right? We've heard that before. We've, we've talked about impeachments before, <laughs> but I mean, and you know, that's kind of where somebody today, right? They can go, oh, you, that's just political. That's just political. And they can point to Jefferson and then go, yeah, it's political because this guy used it politically. And now everybody that uses it in the future has now it's political, but they, they fail to like compartmentalize, I think sometimes. 
Oh, well, and also to see the whole full thread through it. I mean, just the, the going well, back to precedent, too. the fact that, well, someone else did this, so I can do that, you know, that uh, yeah. affects it as well. If I can just continue with Jefferson's power hungry story here. So he tries to, he tries to get Chase impeached, right? And then Burr has this wild thing and he goes out of his way to try to get Burr convicted as well. Um, and it, a lot of the reason was he wanted Burr out of the way. Burr was a political rival on his part in his party. He saw him as an obstacle for Madison becoming president in the next uh, cycle. And he like he worked hard to try to get Burr, uh, you know, arrested for treason, which the punishment was death. Like he tried to. That's insane. I'm like, I'm reading that story and I'm like, yeah, I could see Jefferson doing this, actually. (laughs) Presidency, man, it gets to people's heads. Well, you know, I mean, I think that's what happens when you give somebody power that doesn't, you know, doesn't deserve it. Well, and and also, um, regardless of deserving it, not being disciplined enough to let it get to their head. Because I think if you even like you read the histories of, of Jefferson and um, when he was in Paris for the uh, part of the American delegation, like he just ran up huge bills. Uh, um, and so there's sort of a an undisciplined aspect to that where he in his mind he thinks he's doing all these great things with science and entertainment um but in reality he just kind of he does whatever he wants and uh, doesn't uh he doesn't quite fit with the, the repercussions of it yeah and, and he also kind of reports back to to congress that like everything in paris is fine the french you know they're in the french revolution when they're mm-hmm. starting up and then like you know he had i mean he he vehemently defended the french over and over again he tried to get the united states to side with them over and over again you mean there was the whole citizen genet thing the xyz affair i mean jefferson you know he he was he doesn't come off looking good you know let's just put Mm -hmm. it that way (laughs) and and i think a lot of what you're saying is it's undisciplinedness right i think the one thing madison was kind of following jefferson's lead in a lot of it i i look at their relationship as like brothers and James Madison is this incredibly intellectual, brilliant man who's awkward and small, who doesn't fit into society. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Jefferson is this very charismatic um, intellectual who embodies republicanism while also being this aristocrat that everybody looks up to. And he takes a liking to James Madison. And Madison's kind of like trying to please his big brother in a lot of circumstances. He does some shady things, I think, along the way because of this. That's why I – like. I love James Madison, like when he was writing the Constitution, and then I love him like after the War of eighteen twelve, because like after the War of eighteen twelve, like I think he reflected as an adult and as his own individual, and he was like, you know what, I'm gonna make my own decision. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop listening to Jefferson, you know, because I think that's where a lot of his mistakes came to play is when he was listening to Jefferson. Jefferson would write him, and he would say, "Come on, man, take up your pen and defend me." Like Jefferson called for him to defend him. It's insane. Well, that's um, that biography that uh, you recommended of James Madison. Like it, it's very explicitly the three stages of James Madison, the constitution writing, the partisanship, and then the presidency. Right. And, and he was, he was, he was a big partisan and so was, and so was Jefferson. And I, again, I think Madison's following Jefferson in that aspect, but you know, that's just my opinion. I've only I just keep on reading books and about these people and <laughs> shaping who I think they were as I go along. It's, uh, I mean, you're discovering that you're the blind man discovering the elephant. That's yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so we had another topic, John. What was the other topic we were going to talk about today? Well, we're uh, Jeff and I are both part of this Madison Republican faction, and we, so we were we've kind of been discussing where the direction of this faction wants to go, and um, this little chat we've got. Um, we've, we've been talking about populism and sort of, um, I guess what, what makes up the Republican party as it is and kind of what is the driving force behind it. And I think as you, you've mentioned, um, there's a, there's very much a populist aspect to it. And so I think that, um, it is definitely in contrast with the like, uh, country club, conservative country club, uh, elite social aspect that a lot of people have kind of historically thought the Republican party had. And I think that's where there's so much um, dissension in the ranks. And I think it's healthy. I think, you know, the fact that people have different ideas is fine and, and that people work through these problems. And so the populism aspect of it is interesting because um, populism is very much uh, obviously the populace, the populi, the people. Um, but it's it's kind of like people are just fed up and they're really they have all these um, pains, but no one's doing anything about that. And I'm. I think that was one of the things that was interesting about the rise of Donald Trump and sort of how he was able to break through and why he even brought people into the Republican Party and drove people out of the Republican Party. Um, and it's part of this whole shifting um, of the parties. It's this this populism. And so I picked up this book a while back called The Republican Workers Party by this guy, F.H. Buckley. Um, and it's it's interesting because when well, you read through it and you, you kind of, I mean, you're just, you're nodding your head through it. And you're like, yeah, that's a that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, and I I would say maybe I don't agree with a lot of the solutions of it. For so for example, one of the things if you remember from 2016 was this idea that we've got to tax elite universities endowments. So if you look at like Harvard, apparently Texas A&M actually has the, the biggest endowment because it's all in like land and oil. Um, but these big universities have billions and billions of dollars in these big slush funds that are essentially hedge funds for the universities. Um, and they're, I, I've been talking to my friend about this summer. It's, it's fascinating. They're actually separate legal institutions, legal entities. So for someone like Harvard, the Harvard endowment is its own corporation and they control all the money that's in there. Um, and like, they, like, for example, they own one of these big bridges in Boston, at least the ground underneath it. So they collect rent, for this bridge that was built across the Boston uh, Harbor. Um, and so every year Harvard has to come to the, has to come up with a budget and they submit it to the Harvard endowment. And they said, we would like this amount of money. And according to my friend who, um, the Harvard, the university has to be careful what Harvard, what they ask about Harvard, the endowment, because Harvard, the endowment doesn't like to give Harvard, the university, all the money. So all those complaints, <laughs> you know, like Harvard charges, what, like 40 to $50,000 in tuition. Like that could be gone tomorrow but the harvard the endowment wants harvard the the institution to charge that money um you know i i, I can't fathom why like it i think that's such an injustice because if you're the top university um i mean obviously i think they advertise that money isn't a problem but the fact that they still have to try to soak the rich somehow um is is astounding but anyway so the the populist answer to this is you've got to tax you got to tax these endowments because these endowments are non-profit so you know, they're not taxed like a normal hedge fund. So they're sitting on this cash. They're making these great returns. And it just kind of, they just, it gets bigger and bigger. Um, and so the populist response to that is, well, we got a taxing endowment. But I think like there's a truth a in there idea. that you've got, sorry. I think it's a bad idea. 
oh, I don't I think, think it's the answer bender. is to tax things. Like I and I don't think that's that should be the populist idea either. Like that's when what I think that is is smart rich people trying to manipulate a populist movement, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what I think it is. Because you know what the answer is: more competition. Mm-hmm. Let re- find like rewrite the rules so regular people can get into the market. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, I mean like that's that's so true. Sorry. Like it, I got it's, all upset. No, I mean like it's a, it's a silly idea. And the thing is. Okay, so you go after the Harvard Endowment. Great, you, you take Harvard down a peg. But what the collateral damage from that, and I think this is one of the, cha- the, the dangers of populism, is that you've got your elites that you're aiming these laws at in order to take them down, but the, the, the spray of that is so bad because you think of like Hillsdale. Hillsdale takes no federal money. They have a big endowment. And I think whatever the rules that were, that were proposed, they would have been targeted by this, by this tax too. So now you know, you've gone after Harvard, but you've also gone after a very interesting conservative liberal arts college that is actually very independent um, so much so that they do whatever they can so that the federal government can't tell them what to do at all. Um, so I like, I mean, like it's, it's an interesting book because it points out a lot of problems, problems that I think Donald Trump was able to um, point out and capitalize on and sort of say like, follow me and I'll fix them. So, <laughs> going back to what you said, the elites, uh, trying to, yeah. to lead people to, to fix the bring look i'm sorry I, i've always been annoyed by this there's nobody more elite than donald trump mm-hmm. i mean like it's just like he's the most elite of the elites he's king louis like let them eat cake like this is this guy like whatever you think he is i'm sorry dude doesn't he have like a gold toilet or something like if you have a gold toilet that's it you have your own private jet you're elite. You're not allowed to like come down here with the common folk. Stop pretending yeah, to be one of us. <laughs> that's actually He's one of look- my favorite federal campaign finance rules is that if you have, have personal access to a private jet, you can use it and it does not count against, um, you know, it doesn't count against any donation limits or anything. But if you, if someone were to lend you a jet, that would count against their campaign finance donations. Um, and then again, if you own shares in a jet, you know, you're only allowed to use the jet up to the proportion of your share. So the fact that that's in our campaign finance law is why our com- campaign finance law is broken, right? <laughs> like it's insane, but like, look, we talked about, we talked about Jefferson and Marshall and they, it was a battle for power during that period between the Federalists and the Republicans. Look, all of Donald Trump's flaws, you're right. He pointed out a lot of things. That regular people were like, yeah, this is a problem. We should do something about it. But his ideas were terrible, if he bothered to have any. And the thing is, is the man is really good at wielding power. Like, I'll criticize him all day long. I don't think he's, I don't think he's intellectually capable of being president. I think it's embarrassing that we elected somebody as, you know, ill-informed as him. But where he is exceptionally well is reading the room, understanding mm-hmm. how to you know, build relationships and then wield power over those people because that's what he did. He he became successful at putting on these rallies. He used those rallies to get other people elected and to raise money for them, right? And their PACs and whatever. They were able to get their jobs and become elected. And they were then, you know, they were Donald Trump's buddies at that point. And he would wield his power on Twitter over them by insulting them or whatever if they stepped out of line. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, like Mr. Senator Ted Cruz, 
you know, they, they're weak, ineffective leaders. So they cowered back and they, they, they towed the party line, which Donald Trump wrote, essentially. So, you know, there's a lot of negative with the guy as far as like personally and his lack of whatever. But if you're looking at him as a politician, which, you know, I define a politician as somebody that wields power. <laughs> He's a great one. Like he, he, he did politician that is anyone who goes around. Politician is anyone who goes around and says, oh, I'm not a politician. But I'm. I want you to vote. Well, for I'm, well, I'm. You know that. Hey, that was me a little bit. I'm not a politician. But I didn't really ask anybody to vote for me. To be fair. To be fair, I didn't. I don't think. I think I may have asked once or twice. But for the most part, I avoided it. <laughs> next time, I fix that next time. But so. Um, but back to back to the populism thing. I mean, I think that what we. You know, the idea of uncapping the house, that's a that's a populist movement right mm-hmm. there, right? Because Absolutely. what am I trying to do? I'm, we're, we're trying to move power away from that very small elite group of people that hold it right now and disperse it, you know, or down to the regular people where it's supposed to be realistically. And then taking on, you know, campaign finance, citizen, excuse me, Citizens United, that's, again, regular people don't have the chance to run for office because mm-hmm. it's co- the cost is too much and that's because of the rules that we wrote to make it that way um and so i think those are all like they should ring true with a a hardline republican populist movement and if you can stay true to your conservative values which i think that we we both have i think traditional conservative values for the most part i consider myself like a hardcore republican as far as the structure of government but i'm also i'm understanding i have a little bit of those federalist tendencies you know, that Madison kind of adapted when he was writing the Constitution. I agree. There does need to be some sort of, like, superiority. There has to be a division of powers and all that stuff. But, you know, I think there's, it's yeah, something a that the American people are ready for. Yeah, and, but I think it's something that the American people are ready for, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a populist movement that is understanding what's going on. Because I think a lot of the populist movements that we've seen in our past are— small groups of people leading large groups of people, which is what I'm trying to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those those large groups of people are, for the most part, in the dark of what's going on. They're just, they're hearing the buzzwords and they really don't know. You know, look at, I mean, that's how we ended up with the New Deal, right? And FDR. People right. were in, they were ready to listen to anybody that could give them some answers. And FDR came out with some answers and, you know, they listened and voted them in and over and over again. <laughs> But they were not good answers. They were not good answers. And that's that's where, you know, and you can go back to Jackson. You know, that started as a populist movement, too, and it ended mm-hmm. up in a civil war. So, you know, populist movements don't always, like, yield the results we want. Um, I think they could be done better. And I hope that we can, I hope we can manage that. <laughs> better populism. I mean, better you know, for I mean, I think I... Populism is like a short-term answer, you know, realistically, for a lot of things. It's when, it's when the ruling class get out of line, the people rise up and say, hey, 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 we have power too, you know. You need mm-hmm. to at least pretend to do your job. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's talk about one more thing before we go, John. Did you see, uh, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but did you see uh, Ted Cruz today? No, I, I did not. But you, you did say you got someone threw a white claw at him at a at a Houston Astros parade. Yeah. So somebody threw a white claw at him. Which, by the way, don't do that. Don't be that jackass. Okay. 
He's still a human being. He's still a person. Um, but he goes on Twitter and he like, you know, he thanks the police, the sheriffs for being there. And then he thinks he, he's thankful that the guy had a noodle arm. And all I can think is this guy is a United States Senator. He's a clown. Like he's not even taking his own safety seriously. What's to make us think he's taking ours seriously. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I don't know if he's, if he pays attention to what goes on in history and what's going on in the world right now, but I wrote an article and we did a whole podcast on the history of political violence and how hot the temperature is right now. Maybe he doesn't want to be poking the bear on Twitter. You know, maybe not make fun of the guy that just assaulted you, you know, not to say that this guy is going to come back and God, I hope nothing But, but someone happens. else will. I mean, someone will be like, oh, well, I, you know, I played baseball for five years. I got a big arm. I'll get you Ted Cruz. I mean, like, it's, it's right. terrible, but that's what you would imagine would be the next step. And, and like, all he has to do is say nothing, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, that's the best thing or the, the worst thing he should be doing is saying nothing. Like, and if he is going to say something, it should have some thought behind it. You know, there should be, like, try to meet with the guy. Like, it was just a white claw, right? I'm sure he, this guy is probably going to face charges and his life is upended probably for, you know, for the remaining future he could reach out some consolatory way have a conversation with him like maybe do a podcast with him i think i've made that suggestion before where have a, you could have a, you know the, remember the obama beer summit he could have a white claw summit yeah you could have a white claw summit i don't know there's something to be done or at the very least just do nothing stay off of twitter ted cruz like stop pretending to be the common man with your beard and your flannel that's my look okay i know i shave <laughs> but come on dude like, stop pretending. I'm so tired. These guys are actors. They're not real politicians. They're not real leaders. They're actors. And he's a really bad one. Yeah, he needs better classes. Sorry. I just... I have, unlike, I have unlike our governor who's going around uh, campaigning for everyone, he's a good actor. I mean, he is a really great actor, to be honest with you. And and it, look, I've been on stage. I've, I've, I've done a, a, a speech before. There's a lot of acting in that, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, I practice the speech for days ahead of time just so I could remember it. Yeah, we're, they're acting. I was acting. Anybody that tells you they're not acting when they're on stage, it's, they're kind of lying to you. You should be scared of that person. <laughs> so, yeah, if, Gunk, if Yunkin doesn't think he's acting out there, he's mistaken. Because I've seen the same stump speech like 40 times, and that takes practice. Yeah, and the, he's got the basketball. That's always my favorite. Uh, it signs the basketball throws yeah. in the crowd. Yeah, I mean it's so predictable. It's like advertisers wrote his whole script for him, and he's not really understanding what he's saying sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there is the virtue of sticking to your talking points, and but it's it's safe that way. It's safe that way. Yeah. Any poly- any parenting tips today? Um, keep that Halloween candy up high so it doesn't <laughs> doesn't get eaten for breakfast. Oh my god! the The girls when they got home, they like took their bags and they like were taking them upstairs to their room. And I'm like, "What are you doing?" They're like, "I'm putting my candy away." And I was like, "Since when do we keep food anywhere but the pantry?" <laughs> like they were like, "This is mine. <laughs> I'm taking it to my room." And I'm like, "No." It's all going in the same basket. It's everybody's. Sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I've heard some people 
say that they, you should just let your kids eat as much candy as possible because they'll get themselves sick and they'll develop an appreciation for it. But I, I just think that, uh, you know, you don't get to savor it as long. I mean, you're doing your, really, you're doing your kids a service by giving them candy over a couple months rather than having them eat it all in one night. Well, so the thing with that candy thing is, is it works with like half the population Mm -hmm. because some of my kids that would work on, but I know for a fact that one of my children will just eat so much candy until they throw up and that's what's happened. So I'm not making that mistake again, right? (laughs) Yeah, not, not good. I'm not even going to out the kid on the podcast, you know, because it could be any of them because I've had kids for a long time, so... (laughs) <laughs> but he knows who he is. <laughs> Safety in numbers. That's right. <laughs> All right, John. That was a good episode. It's a good show. We winged it, you know. It was it was all just hey, let's just talk about this book for a little bit and then we'll talk about power and Trump and everything else under the sun. Election day's tomorrow. Um go vote for somebody tomorrow, which by the way, by the time this, you hear this, it'll already be over. I hope you voted for somebody. And if you didn't have anybody to vote for, I hope you didn't vote. Because you really should stop voting against things. I like that. Vote That's for somebody. Suggestion. Vote for something. And if the parties aren't going to do their job and put somebody up that's worthy of being voted for, you should probably go to your party and, you know, like volunteer and run for power inside of that power that party <laughs> run for Congress. to change it you need you need a competent leadership in your local parties peace and love <laughs>